Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. There's possibly going to be a dislocation between what the FCA is trying to achieve and what industry understands it is trying to achieve. So that nexus between the industry and the regulator will be broken. That's the risk. Today's guest outlines why, in a time of significant cuts to public services, the UK government should consider increasing funding for the Serious Fraud Office, the UK's top prosecution agency for white-collar crime. He also lays out the case for significantly simplifying the workload of the UK markets watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority, and offers tips for those looking to pursue a career at the regulator. Sashi Kanth Malella is a former regulator and criminal prosecutor. His 22-year career includes stints as a case controller at the SFO, and as a technical specialist in the enforcement division of the FCA. He left the FCA in June to join consulting firm Ancura, where his work includes advising financial services firms on their risk and compliance obligations. Hi, Sashi. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, Lucy. Good to be here. You spent five years at the Financial Conduct Authority, UK's markets watchdog. Could you tell us a bit more about your role there and explain why you opted to leave the post in June? My main role was as a technical specialist in the criminal prosecution team. Non-FCA speak, that's a senior in-house counsel. I did that for five years. More broadly, the role involved assisting management decide what cases to adopt for criminal investigation, providing legal strategic advice, helping to distinguish between regulatory and criminal cases, which is obviously something that's quite a finely balanced decision in complex situations. In practice, a lot of my time was spent helping shape cases. Having previously worked at the SFO, I had a lot of experience in buying cases so they didn't turn into sprawling or unmanageable investigations. The FCA threshold for opening a criminal investigation is incredibly low. And a lot of that time was spent telling case teams that have pursued all reasonable lines of inquiry that they should close an investigation. That's quite a difficult conversation at times because people have an emotional investment in their work and they've spent a lot of time investigating something. But I think because my previous experience at the SFO had more credibility delivering that message and getting that unwelcome news across. On the policy work, I did some work around data capture, use of search warrants, arrest powers and compulsory powers. I left because of the opportunity here at Ancora. I've known John Brown, who's the head of risk forensic and compliance in London for 16 years. We met working at the SFO back Mm -hmm. in 2006. He was helping to expand the offering at Ancora, and it was an opportunity to help him build the practice. Okay. While you were at the FCA, the FCA acquired a new CEO, Nicola Rati. 
Um, and he arrived at the FCA with a whole myriad of ambitious reform plans that he set about implementing at the regulator. Rathi's reform agenda is intended to create a regulator that is data-led, that is more efficient, that is able to make decisions faster than it is and capable of regulating a large and increasing area of the financial service sector in the UK. What is your view on his plans? They are all good suggestions. But he's come in, he's introduced a transformation programme. There's been quite a significant turnover in senior staff. Obviously, being a data-led organisation is something that you simply have to be in the modern world because the amount of data is expanding exponentially and it's the only way, really, you can be a modern regulator. But you still need the people who understand what that data means and to provide analysis of the raw data product. And the risk is with what he's doing and the changes in personnel and the, the well-publicised employment issues that the FCA has faced this year with strikes, etc., is that you can't retain enough people to deliver the work at an operational level. Your macro agenda can't be put into effect. How would you reform the FCA if you had the power to do so? I would simplify it does or does not focus on. Statute purposes are so wide, you can look at virtually anything that touches on the UK market or UK investors. If you're not careful, that's too broad a scope. Clearly not everything can be prioritised. It's very difficult for firms to work out exactly what they're supposed to do or rather what they should focus on. A lot of the regulatory framework is around principles. Regulated firms are very keen to know exactly what they should do. The former chairman of the FCA who left earlier this year, Charles Randall, said, the rules governing the regulatory perimeter are hard to understand given how much they've changed over time. It's actually almost impossible to explain. There's tremendous risk of confusion either on the part of consumers or on the part of our staff. So it's not a good situation. So that's the former chairman of the FCA and he was a partner at Slaughter and May for more than 20 years. So he can't define the regulatory perimeter then sort of what chance the firms have of understanding what it is and what they should do. In terms of criminal cases, I would publish a non-exhaustive list of criteria that will be considered when deciding whether or not to take on a criminal prosecution or alternatively to go down the regulatory route or take no action. There's some high-level guidance in the handbook and some more detailed information about market abuse, but it could be developed, for example, where the criminal track could have been pursued but isn't. The FCA could be more explicit as to why. Was it because the company cooperated? Was it that the company has reformed its systems and controls? Did the company self-report? Was the conduct minor or historic or a single employee acting on a product of its own? Or did the FCA just conclude that it wasn't in the public interest to pursue the criminal route? Companies want to know where they need to position themselves. For example, with the money laundering regulations, many breaches could be treated as criminal or regulatory. How does the FCA decide it could be clearer? in what it tells people about those sorts of issues. Why do you think it is that the FCA is not clearer currently about why it makes decisions, whether or not to pursue a criminal case? If you give reasons, and the more detail you give when giving those reasons, the more scope there is ultimately for somebody to look at it and challenge your decision. So I think it's risk-averse in a sense. It potentially wants to avoid litigation, and it also wants to avoid setting binding precedents because a lot of these decisions are subjective. But the flip side of that, it's very difficult for firms to use decided cases, and I think one of your previous podcasts mentioned this, without that explanation or detailed analysis of decided cases, it's very difficult to establish precedence. And without precedence, it's difficult 
companies to know where they are within the regulatory regime, where the misconduct falls on the spectrum, whether it's a regulatory breach or potentially the FCO could take more serious action. And I think if it communicated its thought process around decisions more clearly, then that would help create a more tangible framework because a lot of the FCA's guidance is principles-based and it's very difficult to know exactly where you stand in a principles-based framework unless you've got clear precedence. Okay, and that obviously creates challenges for financial services firms to communicate to their staff as to how they should behave if they can't be clear on what the FCA wants to see. Yeah, because what I presume would help compliance departments is to say, if you behave in this way, it exposes us to the following regulatory outcomes. If you behave in that way, it exposes us to criminal prosecution. And by the way, it also exposes you to criminal prosecution if you're the individual responsible. Mm. The more case studies you have, we can point to concrete examples with detailed analysis, the easier that is for companies to get that message across. Mm. You mentioned that you think that one of the reasons why the FCA is not as transparent as you would like it to be on why it reaches decisions on criminal cases is because they don't want to put too much information out there for fear that they might then be challenged on that decision. And also they don't want to be too prescriptive where a lot of these decisions are quite subjective. How would you find that balance between transparency and the FCA not finding itself challenged constantly on the information it's putting out because it is being so transparent? Well, that's an extremely difficult balancing act, but it's to make it clear that Each case is dependent on its own facts, and it's not a legally binding precedent. That's how I would do it. And also try and move on from high-level principled guidance in the handbook. The Department of Justice, for example, has a non-exclusive set of factors it takes into consideration when deciding how to deal with companies in certain situations. So it's almost like a points-based scheme. If you score less than 10, we won't take this action. If you score more than 10, we will. And again, it's not black-letter law. It's just guidance. So they still retain that prosecutorial discretion. So it is quite a difficult balancing act, but it's being able to give sufficient guidance that companies know where they stand without fettering your discretion on individual cases moving forward. Okay. What tips would you have for an individual looking to pursue a career at the FCA or at a UK regulator generally currently? At the FCA, the spectrum of work that it covers is enormous. So I would say go to the FCA, but don't go with a view to working in one particular area, especially if you're at the start of your career. I would say go work in as many areas and get as broad an experience as possible. The FCA is quite open to people moving around internally within the organisation. That way you get a breadth of experience you probably couldn't get from another employer. What do you think the FCA needs to do to encourage candidates to apply? What do you think the FCA needs to do to retain more of its staff than it is currently doing? Does it need more funding? Does it need to pay more? Something else entirely? The transformation programme, it's had a mixed impact when you're looking at individuals remuneration at the very junior end. It's been quite positive in terms of salaries, but in terms of mid-senior level people at the operational end, it's definitely been seen as a negative. It's been well publicised that that has led to some concerns. A number of employees have joined the union, and actually there's been the first strike in the FCA's history. So historically, the FCA recruited a lot from industry. So a lot from the banking sector, a lot from the big four accountancy firms. There are a number of people who are still there from when Arthur Anderson ceased to be. And it also recruited from Magic Circle law firms. You're not going to recruit those sorts of people, by and large, with the amount of money that they're currently offering to employees. 
So if you want people to join from industry or private practice law or accountancy, I'm not sure that the current wage scales are going to enable them to do that. What problems does that pose for the future in your view? Well, the regulator needs to reflect and have experience in terms of the people that it regulates. So if it's a financial services regulator, you need to have people who've worked in industry to come and help communicate the regulator's agenda to the people it regulates. If you don't have that, it's possible that the regulator and the industries that it regulates won't be communicating in the same language. And then there's possibly going to be a dislocation between what the FCA is trying to achieve, what industry understands it is trying to achieve. So that nexus between the industry and the regulator will be broken. That's the risk of the mm-hmm. current approach. Okay. And obviously your experience at the FCA was predominantly in the enforcement division. And we're speaking not long after Mark Stewart, the executive director of the enforcement division at the FCA, has resigned after seven years in position. What's your view on his decision to resign? It's an incredibly difficult job and he's been through a number of changes within the organization he is one of the few remaining executive directors who were there when Andrew Bailey was CEO of the FCA and I do think there's a limited amount of time that anybody could do that job for I mean seven years is probably long enough for anybody to do that role it'll be very interesting to see what the background of the person is who comes in to do that job and what their initial statements are Strategically, Mark's approach was that the enforcement division of the FCA should look at as many cases as possible, and that's led to the number of cases under investigation rising significantly. Of course, when you've got finite resources, if you open more cases, that means you've got less resource devoted to each case, and that can lead to cases taking longer to reach a conclusion. So the previous approach was to take on fewer cases, and to have more staff working on each case. And I think that's possibly going to be the approach of whoever comes in to replace Mark Stewart, but that very much depends on who they are and the mandate they're given by Nikia. So do you have a view on what type of individual should replace him? They're almost certainly going to get somebody who's had a very senior role at a regulator, either in the UK or internationally. Mark came from the Hong Kong regulator, had previously worked at the Australian regulator. A lot of what the FCA does now is international. So getting somebody with very broad and probably international experience is the sort of person they're going to look for. Okay. And you have also spent eight years at the Sirius Fraud Office. Could you tell us a bit more about your role there and explain why you left the SFO? So I joined the SFO as an investigative lawyer. Subsequently, I became a case controller. I did mainly international corruption investigations. The job involved managing multidisciplinary teams, progressing investigations. And as I touched on earlier, what you learn from experience is to get a better understanding of what is and isn't possible, what can and can't be achieved. I left to join a law firm. They approached me with what was a good opportunity. I felt I'd spent long enough on the prosecution side and wanted to get some defence experience. I look back with a lot of fondness at my time at the SFO. I was doing some very meaningful work with some great people. And much like the FCA, the SFO and its director, Lisa Rosowski, have both come under their own share of criticism in recent years. What's your view on the SFO and its current leadership? There are two reports which have criticised the SFO the Brian Altman report into Serco and the collapse of the trial of the individuals in Serco, and the Lord Justice Calvin Smith report into the Unioral prosecutions, a number of which have been overturned on appeal now. 
yeah. raise quite different questions. The Altman report into the collapse of the Serco prosecution makes numerous recommendations, but they boil down to this. The SFO is under-resourced. In the Serco case, there was failure of the prosecutor to disclose material that could undermine the prosecution case or assist the case that was being run by the two defendants. And the judge didn't give them the opportunity to rectify that mistake, and therefore the prosecution offered no evidence. The SFO wasn't able to recruit a disclosure officer with sufficient skills and experience to do the job. It wasn't able to pay a disclosure counsel enough to assist the disclosure officer sufficiently. And I think that's just a microcosm, really, of the challenges it faces overall. For it to do better, for it to do more, it needs more funding. It's not Lisa Rosowski's fault that the operational budget is around £35 million a year. That's really pretty straightforward, actually. The Calvert-Smith report into the Una Oil convictions being overturned, that's a very different issue. Very early on in her time as director, Lisa Osofsky had contact with somebody who was representing a cooperating witness in the case. And it wasn't purely the case that that contact had taken place. It was also the manner of the contact and the fact that all the communications between that agent or representative wasn't available to be considered for disclosure. And therefore, that information wasn't available to the defence at trial. They weren't able to cross-examine either that witness about it or the SFO individuals who'd been involved in those communications. I think it highlights the difficulties of somebody coming and being director of the SFO who hasn't been a prosecutor in England and Wales. There's certain practices in foreign jurisdictions which are accepted and common that English courts, rightly or wrongly, will not accept. For example, America has a plea bargaining system and culture that we just don't have. We don't have the same culture. I think given Lisa Osofsky's background, her behaviour was understandable. The SFO is superintended by the Attorney General's office, but the director of the SFO has a fixed-term contract. I think Lisa Osofsky's contract runs to August 2023. The Attorney General has more than one hat, both a politician and also a government legal advisor. But you don't want effectively somebody who's a member of the cabinet sacking the head of prosecution agencies if they don't like what they're doing. Lisa Osofsky must have taken the view that whilst there were lessons to be learned, the criticism wasn't so serious that she had to resign. I think if Lisa Rosowski is not reappointed, it's likely that her successor as head of the prosecution agency is going to be somebody like David Green, who was a very experienced prosecutor and had previously been the head of the RCPO, another English prosecuting agency. Okay. You mentioned that you think the SFO needs more funding. And yet we're in a situation now where the current Chancellor has said some very, very tough policy decisions need to be made to ensure that the UK economy can weather a tough winter ahead. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's already spoken about potential plans to cut public service spending. The SFO is not going to get any extra money anytime soon. What implications does that have? Well, I think... The first thing to say, an operational budget of £35 million, when you look at overall government spending, isn't a rounding error of a rounding error of a rounding error in the government accounts. It's a tiny, tiny amount of money. And the other thing I would say is that the SFO is a net contributor to the Exchequer. So it recovers far more from deferred prosecution agreements. DPAs, fines, confiscation than is spent on it. DPAs are agreements between 
certain prosecutors, including the SFO, whereby companies can admit certain conduct and enter into an agreement with the prosecutor rather than be prosecuted. So even if you ignored the public interest in more white-collar crime being prosecuted, you could make an economic argument for maintaining or increasing the SFO's funding because the more money it has, the more investigations it can do, that logically means there will probably be more DPAs. And, for example, the Rolls-Royce DPA recovered the equivalent of a decade's worth of the SFO's operational spend. They've been asked to model 40% cuts, which would take, a, say, just using the £35 million figure, which would take the budget down to £21 million. Well, why would you do that? Because if I get £35 million and I give you £200 million back, why would you give me £21 million so I could give you £120 million back? That doesn't really make any economic sense. Mm -hmm. Are you arguing that the government should mull over increasing funding with a view to getting more back from that investment? The main reason for the SFO existing is not to raise money for the Exchequer. But if you're looking at spending cuts to save the government money to balance the government's books, you would have to take into account, wouldn't you, the fact that every pound you spend on the SFO generates four or five pounds back. So cutting the amount it receives would logically reduce the amount you get back. So the net effect of cutting the SFO's budget would be to decrease the amount it returned to the Exchequer in one form or another. And what would the net effect of the SFO receiving no extra funding over the next few years be? Well, my view is it doesn't have anything like enough funding as things stand. And if you don't increase its budget, you can't expect it to investigate more cases or achieve more or even as many outcomes. I suppose we're in the 13th year of George Osborne's five-year austerity plan. It's not realistic, is it, to expect an organisation that doesn't get increased funding or at least maintain in real terms its current level of funding to achieve better outcomes or more outcomes. That's just not going to happen. I mean, that's set against the backdrop of criminal justice system that is really struggling. We've just had a strike by barristers that's ended because they've been given a 15% increase to legal aid funding. Prosecutors can't prosecute if the courts aren't open. There are cases that I was working on at the FCA, for example, that were due in court this summer, autumn, that have been postponed by months because the courts were closed. If you're in a place where the budget for the criminal justice system is such that the courts are closed for a long period of time because nobody's prepared to work in them, then I'm not sure you can cut the budget any further and maintain a functional criminal justice system. So the SFO is just going to be able to investigate less if it doesn't receive any more funding. But this also is in the context of a tough economic period where white-collar crime does tend to pick up when the economy is tougher. So you can realistically expect white-collar crime to increase and you've got an SFO with effectively with its hands tied behind its back because it doesn't have enough funding, in your view, yeah. and no possible increase. Yeah, the overall situation economically has an impact on all, all areas of government spending. And I'm not sure that the criminal justice system is very high up um, the list of priorities for voters. So I think that's the other context, isn't it? So if governments can make cuts to the criminal justice system, then it probably will. But I would say, in real terms, the budgets for these organisations, the SFO, the court system, pretty much been cut to the bone now. I don't really don't think there is anything left to cut. Okay. So at risk of being too flippant, the UK is potentially going to be a great place to be a would-be or a current white-collar criminal in the coming few years. Well... If you looked at the size of our financial market and if you looked at the size of our economy, we don't spend a great
great deal of money looking at white-collar crime and fraud in particular. The country that UK is always compared with is America. The SFO, FCA are always compared to the Department of Justice and the SEC. And the thing people very rarely write about is the fact that those organisations get to use an organisation called the FBI to do their investigations for them. The FBI has other things to do, as well as white-collar crime investigations, obviously, but it does have a budget of billions. So you can't expect SFO, FCA to match the DOJ or the SEC if you don't give them equivalent funding. Mm -hmm. And our conversation around cuts to public services is all part and parcel of the various governments since we voted for Brexit effort to enable the UK to find its feet post-Brexit and to ensure that the UK's financial services sector remains competitive outside of the European Union. As part of that effort to enable the city to retain its competitiveness, the former city minister, John Glenn, drafted a series of financial services reforms in a package known as the Financial Services and Markets Bill, which it's going through Parliament. There are proposed changes to the Economic Crime Bill, which form part of those reforms. Do you have any views on those? Well, if you want to prosecute more corporate criminal conduct, you make it easier for the SFO, the FCA, to prosecute companies, and specifically large companies. The rules around corporate attribution relate back 50 years. Are they still fit for purpose? The answer is probably no. If you want to prosecute more companies, Parliament wants more corporate prosecutions. It could just do so by introducing a new general corporate criminal offence of failure to prevent. Because as I said, there's an offence of failing to prevent bribery. Why isn't there an offence of failing to prevent fraud, failing to prevent market abuse? What's the logic? Why can corporates commit certain offences by failing to prevent certain types of white-collar crime activity, but not others? Mm -hmm. You're, what, two and a bit years away from the end of this Parliament at most? So where corporate crime is actually going to be on the current government's agenda is unknown. The current leader of the opposition is Keir Starmer, though, and he was obviously the director of public prosecutions. I think if Labour were to win the next election, he was to become prime minister, you'd, you'd definitely see all these issues become very live again and potentially come up that government's agenda. Obviously, a lot of things could happen between now and then. But, you know, a well-funded, effective regulator and having laws that enable you to prosecute companies for white-collar crime offences. Anecdotally, they don't appear to have done much harm to the US or the US economy. So I'm not sure having an effective regulator or a well-funded, serious fraud office would actually inhibit economic growth. Arguably, it could have the opposite effect. If you've got a safer market, more people will be keen to invest in it. Exactly. Lastly, and generally, what's one upcoming or current challenge that you think not enough people are paying attention to? Greenwashing is something that people in the regulated sector in particular need to pay attention to. Reporting requirements in this area are quite immature and untested. Currently, FCA Principle 7 requires communications to be clear, fair and not misleading. Firms that market green financial products in a misleading way are going to be exposed to regulatory enforcement. And individuals involved in making misstatements around how green their products are could also be prosecuted under the Financial Services Act. Obviously, it's an area where some people are incredibly motivated to press for action. That's definitely an area to keep an eye on. Obviously, in any market, you will have people who are keen to break the rules and they will find a way. But when it comes to greenwashing, the term that applies to products that are not to be as ESG compliant as they have been marketed. The issue that many firms face is that the regulatory expectations and requirements around ESG currently are confusing. A number of them are works in progress. 
national requirements overlap with other jurisdictions' requirements. And there is nervousness around getting too involved in the market in case you're marketing something now as green finance. How can you guarantee that will still be considered green in five years' time? What advice would you give to investors, to boards who are tasked with making the right decisions now? I think having dialogue with the regulator is probably a very good idea in this space to try and have a better understanding of exactly what they are supposed to say about what. How you give ESG ratings to companies is a very new thing. It's something that, as you say, is probably going to develop over time. All that you can do is report the position as it now and then set out what your future plans are. But it's also very important that if you set out what your future plans are, you do actually have a future plan to achieve those targets and milestones. There is a danger in this space with a lot of people saying they are green or becoming greener, but there's no actual plan behind it to execute that activity. And they make statements because they don't think there's ever going to be any challenge around making that statement. They should be careful to be realistic in their statements so that if they are held to account later, they can say, well, we said we had a plan to do X. We did have a plan to do X. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen. That's a better place to be than to say, we intend to do all these things when there was never actually a plan to achieve all those things. Well, that's been a very interesting conversation. So thank you very much, Sashi, for your time today. Thank you. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.